Hi, I'm Raphael Van Lerup, the founder and creative director at Hinterland, and you're listening to the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Ben Mattis, and my guest today is a very old friend and acquaintance, Raphael Van Lerup, who is the founder, CEO, and chief creative officer of Hinterland Games. They're a Vancouver-based independent game developer who are the creators of The Long Dark, a, a game that I know many of you love and play. Uh, it's, it's really a fantastic, fantastic experience. And Raf and the team he's built there are the, you know, the creators of The Long Dark. This interview covers a lot of different subjects. Raf is a very excited, very engaged guest, and we went through all sorts of different areas. We touch upon what it is to be an indie game developer, what it is to create and build an own IP, um, the role that games play in the sort of overall entertainment ecosystem. Um, we touched upon fundraising as an independent game developer, Kickstarter, which is how Hinterland Games got its start versus, you know, whatever, taking VC. We touched upon a lot of different subjects, but particularly for those of you out there who either are interested in starting your own game development studio or perhaps work at an independent game developer, the lessons that Raf has accrued over many years of leading a very successful independent studio should be very insightful. And I hope you enjoy. Have a wonderful day. Raf, welcome. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. It's great to see you again. We were just reminiscing over the fact that it's been many, many years since we've, uh, we've, we've met in person. Um, usually how I open these things is, uh, you know, just like the introduction, right? Um, you've had quite a, a, a robust career. You've done a lot of things. Um, can you just introduce yourself and maybe sort of give some of your career highlights so people who don't know exactly who you are, exactly what you do can kind of place why you're an interesting guest? <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to be an interesting guest. Thanks. Thanks, Ben. And thank you for having me. And it, it is, it's good to see you again. And as you mentioned, it's been a, a long time. Um, so my name is Raphael Van Lerup. I run an independent studio called Hinterland, uh, based in Vancouver and Victoria, British Columbia. Um, for the last many years, we've been making a survival game called The Long Dark, which um, started out as a, um, I guess you could call it a kind of a passion project, a personal project, um, you know, after many years of working in the AAA space. Um, I wanted to create a game that felt... Um, more true to my own creative values than than the projects that I was working on generally uh, beforehand, and um, you know, and, and somehow managed to <laughs> blow up into a, a pretty successful independent title that now has over eight million players. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still developing it um, and working on some new things at the studio that are unannounced. Um, prior to Hinterland, I worked at, primarily at Relic Entertainment and Ubisoft Montreal um, and some startups in between. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess I've been making games for about 20 years this year. So um, it's, it's a big been, milestone. Yeah, it's been it's been really um, it's been really an, an experience for sure. And and um, as, as I'm sure we'll talk about during this 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 call, it's uh you see a lot of trends and a lot of cycles happening in the industry over that amount of time. And, you know, I know it's cliche to say it at this point, but it's, uh, it's, it's really one of the most amazing things about the business that we're in is, is how it's always changing. Yeah. Um, and it, it's always <laughs> it's fresh. It's never boring. <laughs> it's never boring. There's always some new, whatever, piece of technology or disruptive business model around the corner or unexpected, you know, a game that changes the industry yeah. forever. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely something that I've been especially mindful of over the last few years as we've been delving into expanding the long dark IP into other, onto other platforms like film and television, for example, how okay. traditional those industries are and how they, they, they haven't necessarily um, had to face the same amount of disruption on a regular interval right. as we have in games. And so we've developed, I think as an industry, this resilience around change that, is interesting to me that we kind of take it for granted in a lot of cases that this is just the way our business is. And so we've evolved to be able to adapt. And, and that's something that I think is not 
um, not as common outside of games as you might expect. So anyway, that's a pretty broad intro, but oh, that, that's, that's a little bit of background. That's awesome. And yeah, no, uh, there's, there's a lot of points there that we could dive into sort of celebrating the agility or the, uh, uh, the dexterity of games is a really interesting point. Um, maybe we'll find an opportunity to slot, slot that into, into the conversation for some further, further analysis. But, um, when creating the questions for you and thinking about sort of what I wanted to talk to you about, it was interesting because I mean, I can talk to you about, um, uh, you know, indie being an indie developer and kind of platforms and publishing and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but I, I wanted to start by talking to you about, uh, world building and, and sort of narrative because Mm -hmm. it's obviously something you've done quite a lot in your career. I mean, literally you've worked as a narrative designer and you've built worlds and story worlds and have talked uh, quite a lot about quote-unquote transmedia and are now, as you just sort of said, quite literally working very, very directly and meaningfully in that space. And so um, I was wondering if we could start by talking about that sort of narrative, world-building, transmedia, that sort of stuff, and, 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 and then we'll move into some of the other, other elements. And uh, if you could, could you just kind of define... Where does narrative fit? I mean, it's so broad, but like, Mm -hmm. what is narrative design in games? Because obviously it's not being a writer in the way that, you know, being a book writer or or being a script writer for movies. Um, Can you talk a little bit about sort of how you think about narrative design in the interactive space? Because I think it'll play into a lot of our other topics moving forward. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I hope we do get to go back to some of those other things you mentioned, independent development, publishing. Those are also things that, um, you know, are very, um, relevant to what we do at Hinterland, but certainly around world building and narrative design. Um, just to back up a few steps to talk a little bit about, you know, some of my experiences moving into higher level world building and narrative yeah. direction, um, and IP creation, essentially. Um, I started, w- my career outside of games, actually working as a as a writer, and I have a background. My my degrees in English literature, and so I came to games naively twenty years ago, thinking like, you know, nobody understands how to do you know how to tell stories in games, and and I'm going to be the one that's going to you know figure that out, and and you know this is it's obviously the the overconfidence that comes from having no experience and knowing nothing. Um, and uh, and I and I you know I I worked as a technical writer in uh, tech space for uh, a few years and in marketing a little bit before okay. I broke into games. And what was interesting to me when I was working in those companies, I was working. I worked at Matrox Graphics. So for anyone who's oh, been cool. around a while, remembers that that's that was at some point a competitor for NVIDIA and ATI in terms of the high end 3D gaming you know yeah. hardware space. Um, I worked at a company called Kadera, which has been acquired since then, but they made a pro- program back then called Filmbox, which then became Motion Builder, oh, which a lot cool. of game studios, including us at Hinterland, we <laughs> use today. Yeah. And so it, what was interesting about those working at those companies was the intersection between the tech that we were creating and the, the, the products that were being created using it. And a lot of it was games. And that was my, my first kind of window into the, the industry. Um, and then, you know, I spent a, 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 you know, I decided this is a, this is a space that I really want to be in. You know, I'd been a gamer for my whole life, like a lot of people, but also like a lot of people had never really considered that, you know, Hey, people actually make a living doing this job. That's right. So I, you know, I, I, I sort of left working as a technical writer and tried to use my experience to break into the game space and did some writing and design and, and, and whatnot, um, projects mostly as a contractor. And then I had a chance to, go work at Relic Entertainment. And, and what was interesting there was, is I came in as a, as a very low-level production person, like an assistant producer, where I really had no um, creative influence at all on the projects that I was working on. It was really more about helping to keep the projects on track and organizing mm-hmm. people and making schedules and, and whatnot. And, but I was fortunate enough, because I had this writing background, um, there was a point at, um, in the first project that I worked on, which is a, was an RTS called Warhammer 40,000 Dawn of War, 
where there were all these AI barks that had to be written for the unit um, confirmations. And I can't remember all the details. It's been so long, but it was kind of like one of these situations where we had an external writer or someone internal was doing it, but they didn't have enough time to do them all or whatever. And I, I just sort of raised my hand. I was like, well, I can help with that. <laughs> I can write. And, yeah, I can write. <clears throat> so that was that was my first you know, chance to really contribute as a writer, even though in a small way, to a, a shipped game. And I wrote all the unit confirmations for a couple of the races in the game. And then, and then you know, the next project I worked on was Company of Heroes, and I ended up, was I was working game. mostly on the gameplay side of that project, but it was a very similar situation. Like, there was a point at which, hey, shit, we have to write all these AI barks for, like, dozens and dozens of different units, and it just added up to this huge amount of dialogue. And so I wrote a bunch of the AI barks for, uh, for Company of Heroes, and what was so exciting about that was the was that you know that process of like writing something down and then then like seeing it come be brought to life by great voice actors and 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 seeing how and much those yeah and those small bits of flavor dialogue could really help build an experience and so yep. that was sort of like the starting point for me um and then I you know I, I worked with a startup for a while that was um explicitly designed to create game IP that would be adapted to other mediums. And so it was like kind of a very early, what we would, what we then were calling transmedia and now it's called cross media. Now it's called cross platform storytelling. Um, and this was before Ubisoft. And so I spent some time working with multiple teams on creating original IP that was co-developed and co-owned with these independent studios. Um, and that was sort of my first uh, experience of trying to create something high level as an IP, not only a game experience based on game mechanics, but also a world and a setting with characters and interesting plot and like all the elements that could turn it into what today we would call a franchise. Um, and then I had the, the incredible opportunity to go over to Ubisoft Montreal, which is where you and I met. Yep. Um, and I was working on Far Cry 3 um, in the early conception phase of that project at the same time that Ubisoft was rolling out the first phases of their own IP strategy. So it yeah. was the first time where I think that, and you probably have different insights into this, but for where I was sitting, at least it was, it felt like it was the first time the company had decided, you know, we have these worlds that we're creating. Let's take this bigger, broader approach to our IP, you know, uh, design and think about these in, in, as a larger, you know, in a larger scale, not just what the player yeah. is experiencing in a game, but how can we build these into larger scale franchises that can be taken to film and television and comic books and all these kinds of things. And even on the during the development of of the you know first iteration of Far Cry Three, which is the one that I worked on, there was already a lot of collaboration going on between like comic book writers and you know, discussions with film people, and we did story meetings with you know, executive producers from, from really big television shows back then. And it, there was already like this, con, you know, conversation about convergence happening. That's right. Um, convergence, convergence between film, television, and games, which interestingly now we're, <laughs> you know, in 2021, we're now starting to see the opposite side of that, um, that conversation happening where now, you know, film and television are in some ways that industry is struggling and the medium is, in my opinion, somewhat in decline, whereas games are growing and are, are in many ways the ascendant medium for narrative as well. And we'll we'll talk about that more later. Um, and then, you know, went to went back to Vancouver, back to Relic and, and directed a game called Space Marine, which was really for me a really interesting exercise of taking this really established license, Warhammer 40,000, that had been around for 35 years at that time that had a hugely passionate fan base that was very invested in the fiction of, of 40K, which... Well, we'll you know, definitely what, talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whatever you want to say about the core game and the miniatures and whatnot, um, which, honestly, I never was really into the into the tabletop, the, the world building around 40K is really rich. I mean, they certainly have borrowed liberally from a lot of existing influences, yeah. but they've managed to put it together in a really compelling world that has a very strong tone and... You know, and and so the exercise of translating the world of Warhammer Forty Thousand that was mostly expressed in rule books and in these tabletop miniatures into uh, you know, and we had done this on the RTS side at Relic with Dawn of War years before, you know, representing that experience as a video game as an RTS that was almost more of a literal adaptation. You know, how can right. we take a tabletop game and then turn it into a real-time strategy game? But there was a much closer connection between those two experiences. Whereas with Space Marine, it was how do we how do we 
you know, adapt a world that's designed for this really crunchy tabletop game and this vast, rich universe full of insanity and and represent it and communicate it as a third-person shooter where you're, like, boots on the ground. And you're really immersed this, and, yeah. Yeah, like and playing this... It. Exactly, feeling it in all the aesthetic ways, but also, like, represent trying to represent that character of the Space Marine, which is so iconic for the IP, but also such a strong fantasy of this almost like superhuman angel on the battlefield surrounded on all sides by hostiles and, you know, the last line of defense against, you know, the, the, the annihilation of humanity basically. And, and, and so that was a really exciting, interesting experience to try to adapt that and working closely with games workshop and having lots of conversations with them about that and lots of like, arguments with them about that and <laughs> trying to, you know, um, find the right ways in which to, you know, bring the Warhammer 40,000 world into an interactive experience and, you know, working with them to try to find comfort with some really strict rules that they had had at that time about how they wanted to see the IP realized and things that we needed to do with it to be able to make a successful, you know, interactive experience. So it was very interesting from that standpoint. And it was also the project in a lot of ways that kind of like broke me as far as working on big AAA productions. And it was the thing that made me realize how I didn't really want to work on these extremely violent um, science fiction fantasy experiences. I really wanted to make something more thoughtful, which is what led me to founding Hinterland and creating The Long Dark. And The Long Dark was really a attempt to create a different kind of apocalyptic setting that was, you know, we call it the quiet apocalypse. It's not about zombies and nuclear war and and all that stuff. It was about, you know, what happens when the lights go out? What happens when power is gone? What happens to society when suddenly all the infrastructure that we take for granted disappears because of this sort of celestial event? And what happens to the people who are already struggling to survive on the fringes of this frozen Canadian winter uh, environment in, in northern Canada. And and that was very deliberately me saying, like, you know, I've been making games for a long time now. I've never had a chance to make something that felt like it was f- from the country that I live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, honestly, I think we know that The Long Dark is is in many ways also a caricature of, of Canadian life. I mean, that's not how things really are. It's not even how <laughs> things really are in Vancouver Island where, where I live. But it was inspired by a lot of these influences, and yeah. and there and and this does go back to this high level question that you asked about world building, which is there's an aspect of that which is really about the flavor of a space, and it's the same thing with with Warhammer Forty Thousand, with Space Marine, it's the same thing with Far Cry Three, it's the same thing with all those elements. There's the job of narrative design or narrative direction or world building or IP creation is really to create a compelling space within which people will want to reside. And that means, you know, thinking about all the details that go into creating a world that feels like it's real. Yep. Um, the, you know, the discipline of narrative design, um, as I'm sure you know, like many disciplines in the games industry, is very ill-defined in the sense that, you know, it varies from studio to studio. Project to project. Project to project. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. And just like a lot of roles in our industry, we don't have the thing that film and television have where they have these extremely established roles that have been that way for decades. Um, and I think it comes down to a few different components. There's obviously the writing piece. And yeah. writing itself is about a lot more than just words on a page. There's a huge, you know, architectural component to writing and story design and... You know, there's a whole bunch of rules that you use when you're approaching writing a story for a film, for example, which has a very defined format, has a very a lot of restrictions actually around what you can do with it, um, and and forces you to be extremely disciplined about how you approach things versus, let's say, a novel where you have a little bit more freedom and there's not so much strictness around page counts and, mm-hmm. and pacing and things like that. And then and then a game, which and then obviously television, you know, television, which is which has its own challenges in format and 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 story design, and then a video game, which has, you know, as many unique manifestations of story as there are different types of games, right? right. So there's no single rule set that makes sense for all those kinds of experiences. Um, but there's definitely you know a, a story design component or an architectural component of of, of storytelling. There's obviously the writing itself, the quality of the writing, the dialogue, how that's expressed, um, you know, the the sense of character and whatnot. Um, With games, I think, 
and this is very much my own personal definition, so it's not a, a, an established or common definition necessarily. It's That's just what okay. I believe is that what's what's unique about games and why I think they are it is the ascendant medium is this participatory aspect yep. of games and this ability for players to have that you know involvement and that agency in what's going on in the in the world. And so you in order to empower that, you in some ways sacrifice some of the authorial oversight that you would have in the linear media like film and television where you can as a writer or a director you can have you really know ultimate control the, yeah. yeah over how something is perceived down to like where the camera is looking and what the lighting is and and everything you know every small minute detail is really a controllable thing that allows you to you know create an experience for the viewer in games we we borrow a lot of those ideas, you know, uh, as you know, from from other media, but we don't have that amount of control. Or I should say, and this, again, is more my own personal take on it. I think the more the storytelling in games adheres to the cinematic approach, meaning borrowing literally from cinema, the less true to the strengths of our medium it actually adheres. Yeah, and so that's right by that. Right. So that's why for me, like, I personally don't connect strongly with um, extremely linear cinematics heavy experiences anymore. I did at some point in my career or sure. some point in my you know experiences as a player and I can still really appreciate the craft that goes into that. But for me the the Holy Grail is still to create deeply participatory, narrative experiences that are driven by gameplay systems. And so gameplay systems are the building blocks of storytelling in games. Narrative that's the tools that are borrowed from cinema are useful, but they're not the end state of yeah. narrative in video games. And so I think that's something that we, you know, in order to continue moving our medium forward, we have to acknowledge that and embrace that. So it, whether you call it transmedia or, or cross-platform or, you know, whatnot, the, the gist of it is the same. You just, you just described it. You've got a story. You've got an experience. You're going you're gonna to communicate that experience through multiple touch points so that the player can engage in your story world in a variety of different ways. Do you think we're seeing fewer or more of these cross-platform or transmedia intellectual properties than five, 10 years ago. I mean, going back to what you said, like Ubisoft 10 years ago, and it was kind of like, like transmedia was like super buzzy and like everyone was talking about it. Could be argued there was a, you know, maybe a little bit of a flash, maybe a little bit of a dip. Maybe we're seeing a growth now. I don't know. What's, what, what are your thoughts? Are we seeing more and more cross-platform media or are we seeing less? That's a good question. I don't know if it's more or less. I think it's different. I okay. think, I think that um, what we're seeing now is, um, or what I'm seeing now is I think if you have the expectation or the, the desire to grow an IP beyond a single yes. game, you need to think about that from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. It's not something that you can just tack on after the fact. You know, I mean, we made a great indie game and oh my goodness, it was more successful than we expected. So now let's try to figure out, you know, the future architecture of that story world and how we might adapt it, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's, I wouldn't say, you know, design out the whole thing from day one, because you don't know what will end up happening with your right. project. You may never have success with it. So it's kind of a moot point, but I think you don't want to be caught completely by surprise either, because it's hard to, you know, retcon things into your game IP um, in order to make it, you know, adaptable to other, other platforms. So I think if you're smart about franchise development, you want to think about those things from the very beginning. Um, I think that what we're seeing is, we're coming out of like a super cycle that's lasted the last 10 or 15 years where comic books were the main source for the blockbuster film yeah. industry, right? And so now that well is starting to run dry. Not that you can tell by what Marvel's doing. <laughs> They're always producing more content. I don't know where it comes from. But, but you know, I think increasingly you're going to see um, game IP as okay. uh, more and more important piece of that puzzle for the traditional film and television industries. Um, but at the same time, this is happening against a backdrop where the TV, film particularly, TV also to some degree are um, 
I mean, to say that they're struggling is maybe an overstatement, but they're they're not as strong as they were. And they they I think that the the idea of what film and television represents in our like our common um, consciousness, yeah, yeah, we like we we in, we we invest a lot of um, power and emotion in the idea of film and television as this you know incredibly influential pop culture medium and they and they are but i think as game developers we're 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 still maybe a little bit stuck back in those days where we kind of we're like well we wish we were as big as film we wish we were as respected as film and there's a lot particularly i think in the west you see you've seen a lot of that in the last 10 or 15 years i think i remember reading an article years ago about the differences between the sort of the japanese industry particularly mm-hmm. in the western industry and one of the things that i remember about that article was you know that for whatever reason, culturally, like Japanese game developers didn't care as much about that idea of um, of uh, the acceptance of the medium because it was accepted as being a legitimate entertainment form and they a legitimate have the art identity form. Identity crisis. That's right. Whereas we've spent a lot of years trying to be, like prove ourselves as that we can do things as well as as TV film or as, as important as they are or whatever. And meanwhile, games are a massive business and they're not. You know, it's it's not even there is you know normal to um, you know people these days as like you know if I say I play games, it's the same thing as saying I listen to music or I read yeah, books. Exactly. It's like it's, it's not it's like a nerd thing. It's it's it, totally it, it's mainstream, per, permeated pop culture to the point where it, it's everywhere. Yeah, exactly. I agree. And, and so we're I think we're coming out of that. You know that that identity crisis, that inferiority complex, maybe. And, uh, and also, you know, I think we're, because of many different factors, we're, we're seeing just the growth of interactive, um, the strength of community and long-term engagement that you can get from a game. And look at the long dark. It's not an online game. It's completely solo single player. And we have almost 8 million players. We've been, you know, many of whom have been playing the game for six or seven years. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is a level of engagement that like, you know, film and TV, like they fall over themselves to try to get that kind of a dedicated fan base and that kind of ongoing engagement from people. Um, and so this is, this is something that I think we're going to see driving a lot of decision-making into the future. You know, we won't use the M word, but there's a lot of discussion about the, the, you know, the, <laughs> I'll say it, the metaverse, otherwise you won't know what I'm talking <laughs> about. I know I said it. Oh no. Oh no. The, somebody's going to appear now, but uh, yeah. Uh, I think it's really, it's, it's, it, it, so it's, it's, it's definitely, something that's growing. Um, I think that um, you can tell, you know, companies like, like Netflix are experimenting with, yep. with interactive. And clearly um, they want know, to grow there. They want to grow there. They, you know, I think they recently announced some movement into the, into the space. They've been tinkering with some interactive narrative stuff like Bandersnatch and yep. Minecraft story mode and some of those things, which frankly to me are, you know, I understand them as, I see them as very early experiments, but they're yeah. like, you know, 1980s era levels of interactivity. But, you know, no, it's kind of cool adventures. that you can, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that that lets me kind of like pivot into one of my, you know, soapbox topics, which is I really feel like we as an industry need to, you know, grab hold of of this medium that we've built over the last 20 or 30 years and and make sure that, you know, Games, game companies and game creators are really the drivers of the future, not to have these large-scale media companies that are coming in from television and film and saying, oh, video games, that's the new growing thing. Like, our industry is kind of in decline. Let's get in there and, and start, you know, taking over and, and, and bringing in a lot of our structures and a lot of our traditional thought process around how things should be made and suddenly find ourselves, you know, in a, in a lot of ways missing out. So, um I'm not really answering your question that directly. I think there's a lot of a lot of people are thinking about um, IP creation from the standpoint of cross-platform. I think there are still huge numbers of people that are are you know watching television and, and films. Um, there's definitely a lot of things that film and TV do that do extremely well that games don't do extremely right. well that are very valid things. And I think that what you want to do as an IP creator is think about all of these as different tools that you have in your toolbox. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think then the challenge becomes finding the right partners to execute sure. on some of these other projects, yeah. which in itself is very tricky because as I said, you're um, even a, even a company like Hinterland where we've been very successful, we own our own IP, we're completely independent. 
we we have a, a successful you know world and setting that has a lot of players that people would love to see um, expanded into other into other media, and even you know we have a lot of challenges having conversations and sitting down with all the streaming platforms and the film studios and whatnot and talking about what we would like to make. Um, there's still a lot of resistance. Um, you know, I think Ubisoft has experienced that when they when they broke, you know, when they did the Assassin's Creed film. Mm-hmm, yeah. Microsoft years ago, there was discussion about, you know, I don't know about the current Halo linear projects, but I know in the earlier days when they were talking with Peter Jackson about a Halo film and things like that, I, you know, anecdotally, I think they hit a lot of walls when they went into kind of Hollywood and tried to do things their own way. And there's, there's this really traditional power structures in place there that are very hard to break into. And, you know, what I think it forces you to do as a, as an independent creator is, is basically do the exact same things we do on the game side, which is just try to be different, try to be unique, try to use the tools that we have to kind of break down some of those walls um, and, you know, bring your experiences to an audience in the way that you can. Well, so, I mean, I think it's whether there are more transmedia or fewer transmedia IPs, I think I agree with you that games are taking a increasingly so taking a leadership role in terms of these 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 transmedia IPs. And I guess to just sort of close the loop on transmedia or cross-platform, uh, I wanted to talk to you about um, creators, YouTube streamers uh, or YouTube video creators, Twitch streamers, what have you, fan fiction writers, you know, basically people who take a gaming IP and uh, through their passion, their, their engagement in the passion economy or whatever you want to call it, um, are, are, are creating their own content. How do you see, as someone who built a world, right? Mm-hmm. Built the world of Long Dark. Um, how do you see the role of the creator economy when it comes to the story world of the Long Dark? Like, are they... Are they are they canon? Are they like are they like can they be can they be involved in a way that expands the story world or do they by definition need to be kept separate because because you don't control them right so obviously uh, you know you, you you can't have them take it off into la la land basically how mm-hmm. do you think about creators when when you have done what you've done which is built this this highly immersive transmedia successful you know intellectual property. Whoa, that's a that's a that's a tricky one. Um, Whoops. <laughs> no, it's good. I mean, like, there's a lot of layers to that question, though, right? And there's a lot of layers to, um, you know, when you talk about creators, content creators, like streamers versus people who create fan fiction versus modders. Um, you know, they're all they're all creating different facets of content that are a view on the IP that we've created. Yes. Um, you know, there there's a an aspect of creation that occurs every time someone plays the Lone Dark, which is mm-hmm. they're creating an experience for themselves mm-hmm. with the tools that we've provided to them through gameplay aesthetics and narrative, right? So for them, that story is real, that story is true, that's completely valid, and that's what we want for them. Yeah, it's their um, lens, yeah. It's their lens, exactly. When someone is inspired by the work that we've done and they create a piece of fan fiction or fan art or a fan, you know, edited trailer or, um, you know, or they or they do kind of role-playing streams, um, that's their content also. They've created, they're sharing a story that that is personal to them that's set in the long dark. Um, that's, those are not our stories. Those right. are their stories, Right. Um, the story that we own is the world, and we own the story of Wintermute. Um, of course, as IP creators and owners, we are extremely sensitive to how our how our work is is portrayed, how our creation is portrayed, how it's used in some ways to tell those stories. So we still, you know, as creators, and I think every any IP creator would agree to this: is you have to have some influence and ability to influence, um, you know, how your work is being used in case it really goes against your values and it it could be harmful in some ways. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that that's, um, there's a line there, you know, like within our community, we have clear guidelines around fan created content and we encourage all of it, but we also 
ask that everyone identifies it as fan-created content um, so that there's no confusion. So if someone happens to go online and find a YouTube video of a fan-created long dark project, um, it's important to us that that they can see that it's fan created um, because we that you know we haven't necessarily endorsed that creation. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of streamers who play the game and have an audience, that is, in my opinion, a different kind of content. And 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 I'm not talking about people who role play in streams because I think role playing in streams is a little bit like you know watching people play D and D, for example, or something like that. Like it's there, it's like a performance in a way. Um, and, 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 and it's a fine line, right? Because there's some streamers who play games, but they're, they have a persona or they have a character really that they're, that they're presenting through their stream. They have a persona and that is also in some ways a performance. Um, but I think that tends to fall more into the line of, um, like it's, it's sort of an aspect of, of, uh, I hesitate to say PR, but it's like a kind of a promotional, hmm. it's a awareness, raising awareness of the IP. That's how we look at it. It's like, yeah. well, we we love to see people enjoying our game, of course. And we want to see them share that enjoyment of the game with other people. And if they have an audience, whether it's big or small, um, they're they're sharing something they love with with people who care about their content. So that's a positive thing. Um where where it crosses the line, I think for us is, you know, we you know, we would hope that people who play our game and recognize, you know, that we're an independent studio, that we're, you know, we're successful, but we're still small within a really right. big industry, that there's a lot of headwinds that, you know, push against a company like ours, business-wise, you know, or otherwise. And we hope that they they take care. You know, yeah. of of what we've created, yeah. um, that they respect what we've created, that they look at what we do and recognize that it's a business, that it has value, um, and that they that they try not to hurt that. Yeah, I think I know. I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think I wonder whether the fact that you have created primarily a single player game. I wonder if that has any impact on it. And I'll just share something with you anecdotally. So mm-hmm. I've got a son, he's 11. You've got kids as well. Mm-hmm. My son plays Minecraft. I don't know if yours does or not, but... Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, so, you know, my son started in creative mode and eventually he got bored and he played story mode and, you know, he's ground through that a couple of different times in a couple of different ways. If you ask him today, what's the story in Minecraft? He doesn't talk about Minecraft story mode. He talks mm-hmm. about the dream server and he mm-hmm. talks about dream and dreams friends role playing inside of the minecraft you know whatever platform mm-hmm. that's the story that currently is the most meaningful to my son in the same way that a couple of months ago all these streamers were playing out in rust right rust was their playground right what's mm-hmm. the story of rust eh, i don't know the story mm-hmm. of rust that millions of people identified was this role play that happened inside of Rust. Mm-hmm. And so it it really starts to blur things, I think, when you start to have multiplayer role plays inside of your IP that you've created that might, for whatever reason, pop or blow up because of the influencer uh, streamer numbers or, or whatnot, whereby whether they label it as fan fiction or role play or not, just by nature of their soapbox. Like, can you imagine what would happen if Mr. Beast came in and did a long, dark role play, right? He could label it fan fiction no matter what. Doesn't matter what he says. By nature of the number of, 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 of fans he has, he suddenly has 20 or 30 million people thinking Mr. Beast's, Mr. Beast's take on the long, dark is the take on the long, dark. And so it just completely changes <laughs> the perception of what the what what the IP is or what the story is. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we live in a weird world, absolutely, <laughs> you know? And, and I think, you know, influencer culture and streamer culture, there are things that we didn't, you know, think about, we didn't know about 10 years ago. We're still yeah. learning about what those, how those dynamics work. I think a lot of what you described, so Minecraft, my kids have had the same experience of it, and I think there's it's it's not surprising in any way whatsoever that that the story of Minecraft is not the story mode version of That's Minecraft. Right. In fact, story mode version of Minecraft is 
in my opinion, very much an afterthought. Yeah. Um, really, Minecraft was never about traditional narrative. It was always about systems-driven player story. Yeah. Um, you know, I, what's to your point, I think what's interesting about Minecraft is how, how it can be so many things to different, you know, people at different times of their lives. So we started also with creative mode and we've played, we realized recently we've been playing Minecraft for like eight or nine years. Yeah. And, you know, so I've, my kids have grown up with Minecraft and I've yeah. grown up with them playing Minecraft with them. And, and now my kids are a bit older and they do the same thing. They have servers and they play with their friends and they, and they also have layers of experience that they've added. Like they, they create their own games within Minecraft. Like, you know, not, not only literally where my son is like, you know, creating adventure modes, you know, mods and, and puzzles to solve and, and whatnot, but they also play like manhunt in servers yep. and they, you know, have a hunter seeker kind of thing going on. And, <laughs> and that's, and then, you know, the other day, my son, you know, my wife and I were sitting and my son came, you know, in the morning came out, got her to bed and he was like, you know, he'd been playing the night before. We said, how, how was your Minecraft with your friends? And he spent like 20 minutes telling this story about this hunter, you know, manhunter game that they had played like in great detail. And this, then we did this and we found this and oh my gosh, I didn't have enough ender pearls and I had to do this. And it was just like this crazy story about the adventure that they had just playing online together. And there, yeah. there was no traditional narrative whatsoever, but for them, that is a story. That's and I think that's story. totally legitimate. That is actually yeah. one of the amazing things about games that only games can do. It's a little bit more, you know, when you talk about a bunch of really high profile streamers with huge audiences getting together to role play in a game, it's a little bit to me like, um, you know, like deciding to watch really good athletes playing a sport, mm-hmm. you know, you're, 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 you're watching, you're watching them play. You're, you're tuning in because you care about those performers. Um, you, and you want to be entertained. Mm-hmm. And that is, <laughs> that is also very different from playing a game, right? Yeah. That is very, very different from playing a game, which is, you know, as we work on, Making games, we clearly have to think about or should think about what are the ways in which they can naturally lend themselves to that kind of performance mm-hmm. and that kind of engagement with with streamers and content creators because that is that is a huge part of how people discover the things that you've made now. Yeah, and it's not but going away. It's not going away, and it shouldn't go away. And I think that's a valid expression of a love for a game. Um, but at the same time, I think we should never forget that people watching someone playing a game is not the end goal. Yeah. The end goal is for everyone to play your game, to buy yeah. your game and play your game and have an experience of your game and fall in love with your game. I don't, I would rather have people play the long dark and fall in love with their story of the long dark and that, that be their reason for being connected to it than necessarily. And it's fine if they've discovered it through a streamer. It's great if they've discovered it through one of their favorite streamers. I think that's fantastic. But ultimately my hope would be that they, after watching content, think that's actually interesting. I want to like that to, myself. Yeah, yeah. I want to try that out. I want to. <laughs> I want to. I want to immerse myself in that world and try it out. And that to me is is um, that's the reason why we make games is so people yeah. will play them, right? Yeah. So like that they'll that. experience them. I like that. Well, and it leads to this next question, which is like more platforms, more tools. You know, it's easier to make a game as an indie today than it's sort of ever been. And presumably mm-hmm. that will continue, right? More and more barriers are coming down. The tools are getting better and better, et cetera. But at the same time, that means there's more indie games. Discoverability is, 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 is harder. Uh, it's kind of like, it's this, this sort of weird, <laughs> it's, it almost is like, like, like a dichotomy between like how easy it is to make a game and how easy it is to be discovered. And again, I put easy in quotation marks there Mm -hmm. for for everything. Mm -hmm. So how do you think, um, whatever consolidation or just overall market forces are going to impact, uh, indie game development in the coming years? Uh, do you see any trends there that have stand that stand out for you as being particularly impactful? I mean, the things that you're talking about, you know, the democratization of of game development through tools or through store access, that's been the case for many years now. And Fair. I mean, I think it was three or four years ago at GDC, there was like the whole theme was the indie apocalypse and everybody was talking about how the indie games industry was going to die off and et cetera, et cetera. Yet here we still are. And as far as I can tell, it's probably thriving as much as it ever has. Um, I think the thing that's changing potentially and it could be a change for the better or it could be a disaster depending on some decisions that are going to have to get made at some point is 
we're 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 shifting into a, a business model um, through subscriptions like Game Pass, for example, mm-hmm. um, where just like Netflix has experienced over the last many years and is starting to, in some ways, pay the price for is 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 you need a lot of content to keep those yeah. channels vibrant and and keep subscribers happy and and engaged over the long term. And so there's a great opportunity for independent studios, you know, provided the business terms continue to be fair and healthy to slot their games into a marketplace that is currently very um, you know, eager and dependent on having high quality experiences. Okay. Um, and I think that's a that's that's a positive, provided the as I said, the terms continue to be fair and healthy. Um, it's also, so I think it's, in, in, that's a roundabout way of saying that there's kind of a new market that didn't exist a few years ago. Um, yeah, the subscription and other, game pass is a, is a big game. Yeah, and it, or like Apple Arcade or, or whatever version then, you know, you look at. And what I like about, you know, I like the ones where the subscription coexists with the traditional business model where you can still buy the game and in some cases, there can be a, a nice connection between those two things. So then the, the subscription service, in a way, becomes an, a user acquisition tool as well. Um, and then if you can figure out a good way to, you know, create, you know, I hate to use the word monetization, but to create those monetization opportunities of a, of a large-scale audience that got into your game at a very low point of entry, um, that could be very positive. You know, it's it's not like free-to-play economics, you know, which mm-hmm. I know you know a lot about, you know, at Rovio, but it gets you a little bit closer to that, like, hey, here's a bunch of people who otherwise might not have ever tried your game. Um, now they now they found out about it, now they like it, now they love it, and now they become fans, and those are fans that you can, you know, work with in the future on future titles, hopefully selling future titles to them. So I think there's a there's a version of that which can be very healthy, um, but again, it really depends a lot on decisions that are going to get yeah. made over the next couple of years, right? Um, so do you, th- do you think that changes, does that change the role of the publisher? Do you see the role of publishers that, like, like you and I grew up in an industry where if you wanted mm-hmm. to make a game for an Xbox, you had to have a publisher. You almost couldn't yeah. self-publish because it was so difficult, so laborious, or so many things to take care of. It was so expensive, et cetera. Do you see shifts there? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we are, um, as like many independent studios, we are a developer and a, and a publisher. We're a self-publishing developer. And, um, you know, we never would have been able to do that 15 years ago, 12 years ago even. Um, and, and you know, when we launched the long, the long Dark on Steam in early access, it wasn't really very easy to get onto Xbox and, and PlayStation right. 4, et cetera, et cetera. And now it is. And we so we self-publish on all the main titles, um, things, you know, like it's hard for me to imagine 10 years ago launching a game on a Nintendo platform. And right. here we are and we self-publish on a Nintendo platform. So um, it's definitely changed the like the I, I think the the uh, the role of a publisher um, and, you know, maybe even more so than that, there is a whole sort of new layer of entities in the industry that are are like financing projects but not publishing them right? right so for example you know full disclosure my friend it's my friend alexi he runs kalu knights and they are a fund for independent game developers and they provide you know funding with extremely fair terms and i'm i'm not we're not a customer of theirs so i'm saying that you know purely for the benefit of the industry um, and, uh, but they don't, they don't publish them. You know, you, those, those developers have to have the capability to self-publish those titles. Um, and as an entity that is essentially just providing like a financing component and they are there to provide other resources if you, if you want them, but it's, it's pretty clear that the relationship is like, you know, we're going to enable you to make a game that you wouldn't be able to make without these financial resources, but that's as far as we go. We're not yeah. trying to publish it. We're not creating yeah. a brand around your your game um, or your studio. Um, and that to me is very interesting. That's those are and there are other companies like that. And they oh, those God. they didn't Absolutely. exist too many years ago. Right? I mean, five years ago, I was 
trying to figure out how to raise funding for a gaming startup. And it was tough. There was like Maker's Fund and like maybe, you know, one or two others. Like it was, you know, there wasn't a lot of people, a lot of VC money in gaming. Today, honestly, I would would lose count. I, I would not be able to tell you the number of funds who are advertising the fact that they are oh, investing yeah. in games, big or small, indie or, you know, whatever. Um, so for sure, it's, it's a seismic shift, in my opinion, towards a completely new model of, it's of, a new of model. funding and development. And there's, a, there's never been as much money moving through this business as there is right now um, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, money's really cheap right now. You know, we are, we've proven to be one of the better COVID-proof, pandemic-proof kind of industries. Um, there's a lot of money pouring into games. There's a lot of acquisitions, consolidation, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I think I think what you're going to see is, well, I think, so you've got the really established publishers like the Ubisofts and the Take-Twos and the Activisions of the world. And I think the pressure on them is going to be to, you know, they're going to continue to exploit the big IP that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, the question there will be, can they continue to build, you know, can they, do they have a pipeline of future projects that they can build on? I think Ubisoft's pretty good at that. I'm not as sure about Activision. You know, when I look at every single studio they have is working on Call of Duty, it kind of makes me wonder, like, hmm, you know, what what's what what new things are they are they making? Um, but as you know, like those companies are functioning at a scale where they're not really equipped to, to take a lot of risks. They've right, got to really double down on these massive projects. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of in on our scale in in the independent space. There are certainly a lot of um, self-publishing developers that are starting to get into third-party publishing as well. Okay. And that's something we've talked about at Hinterland as also. And, you know, I think for me, the challenge there is to find a way to do it in, in such a way that is fair right. to the, um, because the relationship of a publisher to a developer, it doesn't have to be exploitative, but it, it really often is. It mostly is actually. And, and there are, and in some cases, there's valid business reasons for that. So it's really hard to look at it. And, you know, you you even look at the some of the publishers that are, are seen as being the, the more the indie-friendly, let's say, <laughs> publisher. What's that? The good guys. The good guys, yeah. And it's like when you see some of their terms or, you, you know, you, you talk to developers behind the scenes that are working with them. And it's kind of like a you know, wolf in sheep's clothing in some cases. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot of... Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's it's it, you know, I won't say that there's no room for publishers in the industry. Clearly there still is. There are there are developers who need a scale of funding and support that you know, despite all these other options that they have right now are just not going to be valid or viable for them. Mm-hmm. Um there are also a lot of independent studios that are either too small to be able to self-publish or they have no interest in self-publishing. They really just want to make games. They don't want to have to deal with all the business side of the industry or the all the various mechanisms that you need to use to take a game you know, to market. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's always going to be room for someone in that chain to step in and say, we're going to provide this set of services. Um, but for an IP-focused company like Hinterland, it's very hard to see um, you know, how we can fit into that because our, our reason for existence is to create worlds and IP. And so like financing other people's IP is not really, it doesn't really make sense, right? It would be better for us to invest our resources in building more original stuff or acquiring IP that we can, that can become part of what we, you know, what we own. So, um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely an interesting time right now. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and well, so I guess is there anything you thought we were going to cover that we didn't? Are there any subjects you want to dig into um, before we wrap up? Do you feel like we did a good job of picking the brains of Raf on this podcast? Well, I think that's more for you to answer than for me. <laughs> um, I you know I think we talked about a bunch of things that are interesting. Uh, or hopefully they'll be interesting, you know, for the people who listen to I this. I found them interesting. Uh, so. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm yeah. a little I mean, biased, but you know. Well, I mean, I you know, I think these are maybe we don't spend enough time as an industry talking about these things, and so it's 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 good to have the opportunity to bring them up and talk about them. I think that you know we also have the somewhat unique 
position at Hinterland of being an independent studio that has a game on every platform that is, you know, experimenting with, with, you know, IP adaptation to other, other media. Um, so we do have a bit of a different perspective, I think, than, than probably some other studios sure. our size would. Um, and also we're not, you know, beholden to a parent company that, you know, would limit, <laughs> would want to limit what we say about things. So it lets us be a bit, have a bit more candor about some of these topics, but um, you know, I, I think we've touched on a bunch of things that are interesting. Cool. I mean, we could definitely talk more about any of them, but if you're happy with it, can, I'm happy with it. Do and, a, and if you feel like there's things you want to talk about in the future, we can always do another one. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do a follow-up, a part two. I'm still, I'm still thinking one of these days, actually uh, an interview that I want to do is I want to get um, a mobile developer and I want to get a console or PC developer and I want to talk about the, this last subject, this post-platform subject, business mm-hmm. models, convergence, multiplayer versus whatever thoughtful experience, et cetera, and, and mm-hmm. basically have the two different perspectives brought to bear on the same questions uh, from, these, from the, you know, these two different industries. So, so maybe, maybe when I get that one lined up, you can come back because it'd be wonderful to continue the conversation with you. Sure, I'd love to. I mean, anecdotally, I think what might be interesting for you to hear is I have a colleague who's, um, who's been very successful in television particularly, and she's starting a, she has a startup in the game space. And, you know, she's been learning about everything and talking to a lot of people in different parts of the business and whatnot. And, you know, she has commented to me more than once that, like, she's surprised at how segregated the business of games is. Like, there are mobile people and there's AAA people and there's indie people and there's, like, all these different kind of pockets and they don't talk to each other. And I think on the surface, it's, you know, it, it, it like, but if we should get, we should all get together and talk to each other and we'll find common ground. And I'm sure there is common ground, but there is also so much that's different about what we try to do with our player. Yes. Um, and I think that's, to me, what's interesting. And I think when you look at a game like Genshin, that's where people are sort of surprised. It's like, well, wait a second. It's kind of, it looks like a AAA game. It looks like it is gameplay from a, from a console you know, title, but it's on mobile and it's been hugely successful. And it's kind of like people are surprised by that because it's it's not what we've come to expect of, you know, quote-unquote mobile games. Yep. Um so, My hypothesis yeah, is uh, that uh, we will see many more Genshins in the coming years, but that they will be done with teams a fraction of the size. That you can be thoughtful and cross-platform at the same time. And you can take advantage of um, mobile and the sort of extra player base that it brings to the table um, and not completely alienate PC and console player- players with you know, the perceived kind of pay to win business model or whatnot. And I think we're going to see, I think we're going to see more of those in the coming years. Absolutely. I agree with you, you know, and, and, you know, uh, you can look at Genova Chen's game, you know, Sky Children of Light as a good example of a mobile title that is bringing, you know, what we would stereotypically call sort of console sensibilities in terms of its gameplay and its aesthetics. And, you know, I think you're right. I think one of the key pieces there though, is not being greedy. You know, I think, you you are tapping into this huge market and you and you need to find the right way to you know engage with that customer and and sell content to that customer in a way that they're open to that's fair and not get overly greedy you know and try to optimize to death the monetization of the game which i think is I know for myself is a bias when I think about mobile games. I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why I have a hard time imagining like a mobile ad- adaptation of The Long Dark because I'm like, well, how would I make it free to play mm-hmm. without it being, you know, extreme, like just having to tear the design apart and the core experience and put it back together to drive a monetization psychology that isn't, the game wasn't designed to to, to, to deliver. So right. it is an interesting topic, you know. I would definitely listen to that podcast, um, you know, regardless of whether I'm involved with it or not. I think it's a great topic. And you're, you're right. I think, it, um, you know, the, the mobile player is also changing. Yes. And their expectations of quality are changing. And there is um, some kind of convert, like some kind of possible convergence in the types of experiences. And but in an additive way, it's yes. not going to remove the other games that are on mobile that are really successful, it's just going to maybe introduce a new type of experience yep. that currently has been hard to deliver, which maybe is exactly what you're thinking about. Yeah, perfect. All right, well, I think that was an excellent uh, closing uh, whatever section. Uh, Raphael, thanks so much for, for, for joining me today. Thanks for sharing your thoughts about 
the last, well, your career, <laughs> transmedia, your time at Hinterland, all the awesome achievements of the long dark. Again, congratulations. Uh, I, Pretty sure I could find the email that showed that I backed the Kickstarter. So obviously, I've been following you guys for <laughs> a long time. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, no, thank but, you. Uh, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast, and uh, hopefully, we can do it again soon. But thanks Absolutely. so much. Thank for you for having today. me, Ben. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. And that's a wrap for another episode of the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Mattis, and I really want to thank Raphael Van Lurup for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, Hopefully you found his thoughts and insights into the role of the independent game developer, self-publishing, owning your own IP, uh, all of the various subjects that we touched upon. Hopefully you found those all very interesting and insightful. And as always, if you have any thoughts about guests that you think would be interesting for this podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let us know. We love hearing from you, love hearing your thoughts about people we should be talking to. Uh, Regardless, have a wonderful evening, afternoon, morning, depends where you are, and uh, we'll talk again in a couple of weeks. All right.